The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Luke chapter 12, we're going to get back in to bring you up into context. We're going to be reading verses 13, well actually covering 13 to 31 in Luke chapter 12. And you might be thinking, whoa, that's a lot of verses. And it is. But the problem is, it all goes together. It's a narrative. Uh, It'd be difficult to slice it up into pieces because that's not how Jesus gave it that day. And that was not his intention. It's actually the whole, all of chapter 12 is one discourse, I believe, where Jesus had an opportunity to talk to a massive crowd and it spills over into Luke 13. We're going to end up spending about three weeks or so on chapter 12, maybe four, depends on how far we get today. But we are going to attempt to cover verses 13 to 31 because they need to stay together for the context of what Jesus said. For those of you who haven't been here in a while or maybe it's your first time, just to set the context where we are in Luke chapter 12, uh, Luke, the gospel, the third gospel written after Matthew and Mark Luke, written in about 60, 61 AD, Luke was an associate of the Apostle Paul, and he learned much of the life of Christ through the Apostles, some from Paul, but mostly the Apostles who lived in Jerusalem, wrote it all down. The Spirit of God guided Luke to write this very long gospel down in your English Bible of 24 chapters. God has graciously preserved this gospel from 2,000 years ago for us. He's preserved it because Scripture is inspired. He guaranteed that he would preserve it because it's his word. He wants his people to know the truth. So you can be confident when you read the Gospel of Luke that you are reading God's word. It is what God thinks. It is without error. It is authoritative. That's one thing that we got kept getting hammered on while we were in Utah as we interacted with the committed Mormons or LDS people is for whatever reason, they just relentlessly attack the Bible and say it is full of errors. Why? Because that's their counter-argument to when we say things like, well, the Book of Mormon has errors, or the Doctrine of Covenants has errors, or things that Joseph Smith wrote, errors. They don't try to, they just kind of sidestep that reality and just say, well, the Bible's full of errors, and that's what you believe in. So we we heard that incessantly all week long. So this is a good reminder. No, the Bible doesn't have errors. Luke doesn't have errors. Uh, This is exactly what God wants us to know. His truth has been preserved 100%. Uh, Luke wrote this in about 60 AD. So this is about 25 years after Christ died and rose and ascended into heaven. The church has begun. It is growing. And Luke is giving us a portrait of the ministry of Jesus Christ, focusing on his teaching the last three years of his life, and then also his work on the cross, his death for sinners, his substitutionary death, and his burial and his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, proving that he was indeed the promised Messiah, Savior of the world, and also judge of the world, judge of every soul. That is the testimony of the Gospel of Luke. Just a precious gift from God to the church, yes, but to anyone who has ears to hear. Uh, In Luke, we are now in chapter 12, which is about the middle of the book. And actually, it focuses now from chapter 12 to 24 on the end of Jesus' life, probably the last six months of his life. We've seen the first 11 chapters, for the most part, focus on uh, probably the first two and a half years of his ministry, which was primarily in the north in Galilee. Remember, he was raised and born in Bethlehem, down in Judea, but raised in Nazareth in Galilee up in the north. And silence for 30 years, and then he begins his ministry. And for two and a half years, he's doing miracles, he's preaching, uh, and presenting himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures as the Messiah, Savior of the world. Did that for two and a half years in every village, and now he's making his headway, he's making headway for about a six-month period, slowly but deliberately going down south towards Judea, headed for the cross. He knows that his death is imminent, or at least it's in about six months. That's where we are now in Luke 12. So it's Luke 12 through 24. The rest of the book is very concentrated in terms of the timeline and the events that Luke presents. 
So that's where we are. So we're looking at about six months from the cross. Uh, the context mostly is down now in Judea, near Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem. Uh, that's where people and all these pilgrims concentrate. So there's a lot of people, massive crowds, especially around feast days. And that is the case here in Luke chapter 12. What we saw last time, because all of Luke 12 goes together, just by way of reminder, in verse 1, it says, under these circumstances, at this time, Jesus just finished interacting with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders who are the authorities over the Old Testament, and have seen Jesus call himself the Messiah of the Old Testament and prove it by miracles for two and a half years. And they've just categorically denied that and said, no, you're not the Messiah. You're, as a matter of fact, you're a liar. They didn't deny his miracles. They saw the miracles. Unprecedented miracles. They didn't deny the miracles. They attributed his miracles to Satan. Not only you are a liar, you are a deceiver. Yes, you do miracles, but you do those by the power of Satan. That was blasphemy. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So that's what happened in chapter 11. So he's coming off the heels of that accusation, and it was a public accusation. And the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they've been working hard for two and a half years to undermine secretly in the shadows the reputation of Jesus Christ. And they, they're making headway. There is a mounting, growing groundswell of a resistance kind of behind the scenes of questioning by the people, by the masses, against Jesus Christ. From all the whispering and the lies from the Jewish leadership. And it's all going to come to a crescendo and an ugly head in these passages. And so, just as chapter 12 begins, Jesus had just had a lunch. He confronted the Jewish leaders who accused him of being empowered by Satan. He calls them hypocrites to their face. That ends the lunch. And then Jesus leaves that place, and then he ends up, and by the way, and he's got crowds following him. So as he came down from Nazareth, I mean, the people have been chasing him around for free miracles, free food, thousands of people, he couldn't shake them. And they, they managed to follow him down. And then uh, the people heard him coming in Judah, and so the city literally comes out to see him. And it says in chapter 12, verse 1, that there were so many people surrounding Jesus at this time out in public, the people were literally crushing in on him. The text says tens of thousands of people were crushing in on him. This is a mob. This is outside. This is not in a building. This is chaos. He's got his apostles around him. They can't really protect him, but he is the son of God. Nevertheless, he's taking it as it comes. He's protected by the father. He's taking every opportunity to, to represent the Father with truth, and that's what he does here. So you've got, so that's the context of chapter 12, all of chapter 12. Is you've got these tens of thousands of people just crushing in on Jesus. They want to hear him. It's, they were crushing in because the text says in verse 1, they were stepping on one another. That's dangerous. So here it is. And so we already saw what he said. Is there, the crowd is there. They want to hear what he says. And then Jesus sees an opportunity. Why was Jesus was the greatest teacher there ever was for many reasons? Greatest teacher there ever was. Why was he the greatest teacher? Well, you might say, well, he was God in the flesh. Well, yeah, that's true. But in terms of his methodology and his content and his strategies of his pedagogy of teaching was masterful. It was unparalleled. And one of the things that made Jesus unique as a teacher, especially in his day, who were the teachers in that day in Israel? What was the rabbis? They were the authoritative teachers. They were the ones you needed to listen to on religious matters and even civil matters. How did the rabbis teach? Well, they, they taught in the synagogues, really in a staged environment with a script for a short amount of time, they were never spontaneous. They were never original. The rabbis were dependent upon the traditions of the rabbis. That's in the Gospels. Well, what's that? Well, it's not the Bible. It's actually the Old Testament with humanistic opinion layered all over it, smothering it. So it's human tradition. That's the tradition of the rabbis. And that's what the rabbis 
the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. That's what they taught in Jesus' day. That's what the crowds were accustomed to. Oh, we're going to go to synagogue on Saturday and sit in the synagogue that has only so many number of seats for a however long of a service, and we're going to hear a canned speech from the rabbis by some scribe or Pharisee that smothers, hides the word of God. This was routine. This is what they got week after week, month after month, year after year. Then Jesus comes along, the master teacher, and he, he, where's he doing his teaching? He's teaching, his, he's teaching everywhere other than in the synagogue. He went one time in the synagogue, the first when he began his ministry, and he got kicked out of the synagogue. He got chased out of the synagogue. They tried to kill him. It's like, okay, I'm never going back there again. So you go through the Gospels, where's Jesus the master teaching? Master teacher teaching. He is always teaching in the open air, in a house, on a road, in a street, on a hill. And a lot of times it's just spontaneous, and that's what's going on here. Not in a classroom. So he is the master teacher. He can teach anywhere, anytime, to anybody about anything. And this is so masterful. It is the divine word of God, but at the same time, it's just powerful in terms of its pertinence and practicality of the crowd that was there, what they needed to hear. There's, there's three kinds of people in this crowd of tens of thousands. There's his friends who are the disciples, which are about 11 guys. Judas is there, but he's no friend. They're closest to him in proximity. And then there are his disciples, it says, two times, three times in this passage. Who are they? Learners. That's all. Learners. That's not the apostles. The disciples. His disciples. Followers. Learners. They're curious. They're still checking Jesus out. Some of them have been following for two and a half years. They haven't made a decision yet. Most of them probably haven't. Some are being swayed by the leadership. Uh, I don't know about this guy. So you got his friends, the 11 apostles, and maybe some of the ladies that have been traveling with him. Then you've got the disciples, it says, and that's just thousands of people who are following him, and they are students, followers of Rabbi Jesus. And at the end of the chapter, he calls them hypocrites and gives them a warning. And then there's the third kind of people milling in, sprinkled about in this massive crowd of tens of thousands, and that is his enemies. And that's the leadership of Israel, and that's the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and they're just kind of secretly planted around, whispering in everybody's ear the entire time Jesus is teaching. And it's like play-by-play. Every time he says something, they say something contrary in somebody's ear that's nearby. So this is a mixed crowd that he's addressing in chapter 12. And so the first, we already looked at the first uh, 12 verses, and basically... Jesus said, beware. So this entire chapter 12 is about beware. This is a warning, the entire chapter. So that's where we are today. So that's big picture. What is chapter 12 about? It's a warning from Jesus. It's a warning. It's a twofold warning. Beware, watch out for fake religion. Is that a message that applies to us today? Absolutely. Fake religion, legalistic religion, Wherever you find it. And where will you find it? Everywhere, in every church, at some level. So this is very practical. So that's the first beware, or first warning. Watch out for fake legalistic religion that claims the name of God. And then he just exposed that to the hilt in the first 12 verses. And basically he exposed it by saying, uh, beware, watch out for it, here's what it looks like. And on the contrary, Uh, Don't be afraid of it, but think this way. Make the right priorities and put your priorities on God, the true God of the Bible, who you need to fear. Not fear man, not fear the Sadducees and the scribes. And humans, you need to fear God. He's the creator. He's the judge. He is the one who sends people to hell. That's what Jesus said. Fear God and also know me. He mentioned himself. You need to know me, Christ, the Son of God. You need to confess me before men so that I might confess you before the fathers in heaven. And also you need to know the Holy Spirit. And that's how he ended that. So that's how you overcome false religion and expose it. You focus on true religion, which is the triune God of the universe. That's what you need to focus on. And so just in 12 verses, we don't know how long that speech or that lecture or that sermon went on where Jesus was talking. Luke gives us the details and the highlights. But it was up here in the the spiritual plane. The loftiest spiritual truths you could possibly imagine is where Jesus took them to their mind and their thinking up here. Have the right priorities when it comes to true religion about the God of the universe, the one who created you, the one who judges your soul, Jesus Christ, who he sent as Savior into the world and the Holy Spirit 
who comforts you and ministers to you if you believe in God. This is true religion. This is how you know God. This is how you can have a sound foundation so that you don't fear men and fall prey to false religion or deception or legalism. That's what Jesus said, and he said it in a way that no, the way that no one could, with an economy of words that no one could. Breathtaking in 11, 12 verses. And then we get to chapter 13. Well, how did the crowd respond? It's a mixed crowd of tens of thousands. Amen, man, preach it again, Jesus, keep going. Was that the response? No, let's look. Let's pick up our passage today. Verse 13. Jesus gives this amazing, spiritual, high and lofty reminder of spiritual truth. And then it says in verse 13, someone in the crowd. So this must have been, I mean, remember tens of thousands of people. So this must have been somebody who was close enough, almost had access to Jesus, maybe with an earshot of the 12 apostles. And maybe that's how that ended up here. Maybe Luke talked to Peter and Peter was there or whoever the apostle was who heard this and told Luke about it and said, man, you, you wouldn't believe what this one guy said in response to Jesus' teaching. And Luke wrote it down through the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone in this crowd of 10,000 people said to Jesus, teacher, so not rabbi, but teacher. So they recognized Jesus was a teacher, even though he didn't have a classroom, even though he probably wasn't the regular preacher in the synagogues that were managed by the Jewish leadership. But he was recognized as a teacher. That's what he did. Teacher, tell my brother... To divide the family inheritance with me. <laughs> That's, that seems weird. What does that have to do with everything that Jesus just said? Beware of false religion, legalism, the Pharisees, the scribes, the liars, the hypocrites, and focus on the one triune God of the universe. And then you might properly know God. And this guy's response to that was... Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. T Jesus, tell my brother to give me my money. That's what he said. Tell him to give me what's coming to me. So he's having a spat with his brother at home, obviously. He, he's dragging his dirty laundry from his private life into a public crowd of tens of thousands of people. And he, he's airing it for all to see and hear. This guy's amazing. This guy is crass. This guy is earthly. This guy is a materialist. This guy is spiritually obtuse, absolutely clueless. He has no shame. He has no fear. How does Jesus respond? Every, every time Jesus responds to somebody or a question, it, almost, it always surprises me because I'm like, I wouldn't have said that, or I wouldn't have responded that way, or no human would have responded that way. And Jesus uh, seems to always answer in a unique way, a powerful way, an authoritative way, a surprising, a shocking way, but it's always a true way. With his piercing knowledge, cutting to the point, that's what he does here. He doesn't say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, let me, let me tend to that here. Uh, why don't you come on over here to the side and then we'll take that offline. A little later, as soon as this crowd of tens of thousands of people. Yeah, let's do that right now. Let's do some Q&A. And I'll, I'll say, hey, by the yeah, where's your brother? Let me put him in his place because I, I am the God man. He doesn't do that. He, he shows no sympathy whatsoever to this guy. Verse 14, Jesus said to this guy, man, I don't know if your English Bible says that. Most of them do. Man, it's not sir. It's not, it's not a comment of self-respect. It's man anthropos, meaning he didn't know this guy. Man, who appointed me, Jesus, a judge or arbitrator or arbiter over you? Verse 15, then Jesus said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So this is strange. This is, uh, this is kind of a pivot in the conversation and in Jesus' teaching. And that's why I got three points here that, uh, to help you maybe in your outline there of 13 to 31. And this is the first one. And I call this the distraction. This is kind of a curveball. This has nothing to do with this theme that he was preaching on. And Jesus, the master teacher, he's actually going to take this curveball and he's going to turn it into a theme, uh, which is going to be the summary of basically his point of emphasis for this entire crowd of tens of thousands of people. So point number one, verses 13 to 15, is the distraction. 
And that's this guy asking this weird question. Verses 16 to 21 is the instruction. What is that? Well, he's going to actually develop this guy's distraction, and he's actually going to give a lesson that is pertinent to this guy's question. So you've got the distraction, you've got the instruction in the form of a parable, 16 to 21, and then in verses 22 to 31, I'm calling it the application. How do you apply the parable to your life? That would be the application. That's how Jesus unfolds this. So let's go ahead and look at it in a little more detail. First with a little more detail regarding the distraction in this guy's crass response who basically, by the way, he wasn't pleading with Jesus. He wasn't asking, right? Many people who went up to Jesus, they knew that he was different. He was the Messiah, maybe. And so they showed some respect. They showed some honor. Some people actually got down on their face and uh, bowed before him. Not this guy. This guy shouts it out. He's not asking for a favor. He's demanding of Jesus. Jesus, you need to do this. You, need, you work for me. Which just shows you how crass and arrogant this person is. Now, keep in mind, there's tens of thousands of people here. He's the one that spoke up, but he's probably speaking up what a lot of people in the crowd are thinking. And a lot of those people in the crowd were probably glad that he said this. Because why? This is the human heart. This is the inclination of the human heart. When God and Jesus want to talk about spiritual things, our heart naturally does what? It gravitates towards earthly things. The immediate, the temporal, the here and now. Not God's agenda our agenda. And everything that Jesus says from this point on is counter to this guy's agenda. And the way that humans naturally think. We are earthly beings, right? We're spiritual and we're earthly, but we gravitate many times towards the earthly things. And also we gravitate towards what? Our agenda. What I want, what I need right now. And that's what this guy is doing. It's Jesus, help me fix my problem. Give me what I want and give me it now. Give me my money. Give me my inheritance. This is utterly crass. So Jesus exposes him. Uh, verse 15. Then Jesus said to them, beware, watch out. I'm going to use this guy as an example for everybody. Be on guard against every form of greed. So he's accusing this guy in the crowd of being greedy. But he's not the only one because his warning is for everybody, the whole crowd. So do we struggle with greed? Yes. All the time. And that's why we can take this warning from Jesus is watch out, beware, watch out for greed, every form of greed. Greed, the Greek word here is just simply desiring for more, lusting for more. It's a good question for us to stop and pause. Um, here's a question, Christian. Are you content with everything you have in life right now? Or do you need something more? What if God decided to freeze frame? And everything you have today is locked in for the rest of your life. And you don't get anything else. You don't get anything more. Would you be content with what you have today? Or are we just itching for a little bit more? Oh, I was looking forward to this week or this Friday when I can have this thing. And I can order that thing on Amazon. Or I was looking forward to next month or next year. It's a good way to stop and evaluate and think about, are we content? Because contentment is an issue here all throughout this passage, and that's contentment is the opposite of what Jesus is saying, war, warning against, he's warning against greed. That's the desire to have more. Someone who struggles with greed, they are discontent. And they are discontent with what God has given you. So this is a challenge for everybody, not just this guy. Beware and watch out, evaluate your own heart, and... Take guard against every form of greed in your life. For not even when one has an abundance of things does his life consist of his possessions. Even if basically what Jesus is saying there is, it doesn't matter how much you have, you never have enough, right? I mean, we, we live in a culture, an area, a country, a society, a democracy. We have enough, don't we, for the most part? Do a little test. Go on a road trip. Go to the outer poverty-stricken villages of South India where you will see dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people who, who don't have as much as we do and actually many of them don't have enough. They're, they're, they're fighting for the next day for survival. And that was pretty much true in Jesus' day, their lack of technology and whatever. They weren't living for the weekend. They worked all day long, 12 to 15 hours a day just to get enough for today and then they go to bed and wake up and do it all over again. 
completely different lifestyle. So Jesus is warning even them against greed, and even uh, and the, one of the ways to guard against it is your mindset and your attitude, and you need to be learn to be content with God and not in your stuff and more stuff. And if you're just aspiring after more and more stuff, you will never be content. And that interferes with your relationship with God, and that's why he's saying beware. So for the rest of this chapter, Jesus is giving another caution, another warning to believers. And that the first part was beware of false religion. Now from verse 13 on to the rest of the chapter, it's beware of material things in this life. Beware of how you live this earthly life, the temporal. Keep your priorities in order. So this is the distraction. Let's go on to the instruction as he, ta- he tells a little story called a parable to flesh this out so that we can guard against greed. So look at verse 16 as Jesus reads this parable, or he tells this parable. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. Okay, you got a rich guy there in Palestine or in Israel. He was rich, and then he also had land. So he was probably a farmer. He was very productive. He's got all kinds of crops. That's the implication. So he's gaining much wealth as a result of being a very successful farmer dealing with crops. He's rolling in the dough, verse 17, and this rich farmer, he began reasoning to himself. Uh, Apparently, he's a very lonely guy because he has a conversation with himself entirely in this parable. He's not talking to his wife, the family, his employer. It's with himself. Very self-centered, very egocentric. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I am growing so many crops. I've got such an abundance, I don't know where to put them all because my barns are too small, verse 18. And then he said, this is what I will do. So he thought of a plan. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. That's what I'll do to accommodate everything. We see that a lot in Northern California here in the area where where we live, where uh, land developers, they'll come in and there's a little house and they'll, what will they do? Buy the land and then rip down the little house and I will build larger barns, right? Three stories high with a basement and on and on. I mean, we could even relate to this. So he said, I will tear down my current barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. So this guy has been rich for a long time. He's older in life. Maybe he's near nearing the retirement years, and he's made a lot of money, and apparently he's hoarded it all unto himself, sounds like, and he has amassed so much wealth, and now he's going to put it in these new built barns so that he can live on easy street for the rest of his life, because that's what he says in the rest of the verse. Soul, you have many goods laid up for, for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's his worldview. That's his lifestyle. It's completely egocentric, self-centered. Verse 20, but God said to him, and God says this to everybody the day that they die, God knows when we were born. God knows every day we live on this earth, and God knows when we will die. God knows when we will breathe our last. God knows everything about us. He is in charge. He's the author of life. This guy was arrogant, thinking, oh, I'm on easy street. I'm going to take the next 15 years of retirement, or whatever he was thinking, his long-term plan. He can't control the future. God confronts him, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? You're going to die. You will breathe your last. Your soul will leave your physical body. And then you will be in the immediate presence of Almighty God. And there, according to Hebrews 9 and other passages, it is appointed unto men to die once and then the judgment. You die, you don't go into purgatory. You die, you don't go into soul sleep. You die, you don't reincarnate. You die, you stand before the judge of the universe who created you. And you have to give an accounting. You either believe in him as he has revealed himself. For us, that's you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you don't. And then you're consigned either to heavenly bliss with God forever or eternal condemnation, separation from God that we call hell or the lake of fire. This is a parable, but this happens every single day where every soul breathes their last. God knew it. It was not unexpected. And when they breathe their last, they are immediately in his presence to give an account for their life. Yesterday, 150,000 people breathed their last, 150,000 souls or so, 150,000, and every single one of them immediately ended up 
in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, according to John 5. That happened yesterday. They left everything behind. It didn't matter how much they made in this life and amassed and accumulated. They were there, bare, naked, before the judge of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave a simple verdict. Guilty or not guilty, based on the relationship with him. And their destiny was either eternal heaven or eternal hell. Left it all behind. That's true of all of us. So Jesus, again, is making us think about hell, eternal things, spiritual matters, getting us our mind off of temporal things, because that's the right perspective. Verse 21, after he talks about this man that God confronted and lost his life, verse 21, so is the man, or so is the one, or so is the person who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus tells this parable to counter this man in the audience who was just very crassly, fleshly, carnally concerned about the here and now, the temporal, uh, my needs, what I want, my money, my inheritance, my agenda, completely tone deaf to spiritual realities, to eternal truths, and to the future, future accountability before God. But that's the worldview of a lot of people today, isn't it? Actually, that's probably the worldview of most people today. The here and now, the temporal, your best life now, not thinking of heavenly things, eternal things, consequences, being with God, heaven, hell, eternal realities. And Jesus is trying to, what is he trying to do? He's trying to get people to think the right way. This entire chapter is about Jesus challenging everybody's thinking. He's not just trying to change their behavior. That's behavioralism. That doesn't work. We try that. Behavioralism? No. He's challenging their thinking. Everything he says is challenging their thinking. He's either, either giving them new truth to think upon and meditate upon, to affect their life, or he is categorically exposing false thinking. And there's a couple times here where he literally says in verse 24 and 27, you need to think this way. You've been thinking this way, now you need to think this way with uh, deliberate commands to love the Lord your God with all your mind. That's how you deal with the heart, is our thinking. So this is his instruction. This is his parable. And one of the, I asked earlier, why is Jesus such an amazing, awesome, greatest teacher there ever was? Well, here's one of the reasons why he was such an amazing teacher. Because you think about this parable uh, from verses 16 to 21. He spontaneously made up this parable on the spot to deal with a spontaneous question that came in unexpectedly as a curveball out of the crowd. And how does Jesus respond with this masterful parable? I, I will tell you, this parable is perfect. How does he do that? He routinely did that. That's a challenge. If you think about it and you're a teacher, if you've ever tried to teach and somebody spontaneously said, okay, I actually, if you came to our house and you were on the dinner table, at some point, Pastor Cliff will probably uh, come up with a question for everybody to answer. And if I had the parable question here, um, I'd say, okay, everybody, I will give you a theme, and then you need to immediately respond with a profound, amazing, perfect parable in response to that theme. Okay, ready? Okay, your turn. Greed! And then you just wax eloquent, and you come up and you author like a, a poem that is inspired. This parable, and it has all the ingredients of a parable. Jesus is over 30 parables that he uses in the Gospels. They were some of the greatest teaching devices. He was the master of parables. Just so you know what a parable is, because a lot of times people get to parables in the Gospels and they trip up on the interpretation. We don't want to do that. We want to interpret the parable the right way. So starting at verse 16, just to back up a little bit, parable. It's a Greek word and it's made of two words, a preposition and balo, which means to cast, to throw. And then para is the preposition down. To throw down, to cast down. So what's the parable? It's to cast down side by side. Throw something down next to something. Here's a spiritual, hard to understand spiritual truth that not everybody's going to get if I just try to explain it cold turkey. So let me cast down, throw down an analogy, an earthly analogy that's easy to understand and easy to explain that is parallel to this Hard to understand spiritual truth. So that's what a parable is. It's an analogy. And all of Jesus' parables, for the most part, they were analogies. They were taken from the physical, temporal world. 
They were universal in their understanding and application. That's why they were so masterful. He told it 2,000 years ago in an agrarian culture of people who spoke Hebrew. We're reading it 2,000 years later in English in our society, and we totally understand it, it makes sense. It resonates. It parallels everything in our life. That's the mastery of a parable. So it, it's laying down a parable of taking somebody, starting from a lower level, and then raising them to the higher level of spiritual truth. That's what a good teacher does. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Here, let's get your earthly, crass, temporal, short-sighted mind off the earth, and let's start elevating it and start thinking of spiritual, eternal, supernatural things that really matter, guy in the crowd. That's what he's doing. And everybody else that's eavesdropping in on this conversation, that's what a parable does. Also, very important, parables, for the most part, they have just one meaning, one point. Jesus just wants to make one point with a parable. Some overly zealous commentators, a lot of times, they try to find uh, everything under every rock in a parable that means something spiritual, and they make it an allegory. So they, they read a parable here, and it's not just one main point, it's like 17 allegories that only that author came up with. I'm like, well, I read that parable and I didn't see that, but that's very common. Christians try to do that. Try to squeeze all this juice out of a turnip? No. With all these different interpretations. So parable, one meaning, one main point. So we read this parable, talked about it a little bit. If I were to challenge you, okay, write down on a piece of paper, in one sentence or less, what is Jesus' main point in this parable? What might you say? Don't say it out loud, but I'll say it again. What do you think the main point in this one parable is that Jesus has given, because he's got one main point. Think about it. Well, here it is. Here's a shot. And if you intersected with this truth, I mean, you could say it a lot of different ways, but I think his main point in this parable, just one point that he's saying is prioritize spiritual investments while you're here, not temporal or earthly ones. It's really that simple. Prioritize heavenly investments while you're here. Prioritize. So that doesn't mean don't have any earthly investments. He's not saying that. It's prioritize, right? It's a matter of priorities. Prioritize heavenly investments, spiritual investments. Everything you do, first of all, is living for God, right? Living for God by serving others. Living for God by serving God. Living for God by being a good employee where you work. That's spiritual priorities. That's his point here in the parable. Contrary to this guy. So basically what you're doing is living for others. You're living for God first and foremost. And then you're living for God by being a servant to others. That's living other-oriented is called. The opposite of that is being self-centered. Me, 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 I, I, I. Like this guy in the parable, starting at verse 17. What shall I do since... I have no place to store my crops. It's all about I, me, my. Verse 18, then he said, this is what I will do. I mean, that's arrogant. You could die tonight. Don't tell me what you're going to do tomorrow, God says. Here's what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. I will store my grain, my grain. Every gift we have is from above, from God. We're merely stewards of it. Store all my grain and my goods. He goes on, verse 19, and I will say to my soul. Wow. But this is a pretty typical worldview of someone who doesn't know God. And for us, it's someone who doesn't know Christ. Or we as Christians, we can fall into this, right? Very naturally, because we are naturally self-centered. We have sin living in us. And we, the Bible says we love ourselves naturally. There's no escaping that. No man hates his own flesh, Paul said in Ephesians. Meaning ever, you love yourself. Paul's admitting that, even of Christians. So this is a great warning for us. And again, Jesus is addressing our thinking. So here's his instruction. It's this beautiful parable. It's just one simple truth. And he's saying, those of you out there who are willing to listen to the truth, who, who know me, who want to be obedient, who want to live God's way and not be a legalist and not be a materialist, Prioritize spiritual investments while you're here on earth, not temporal ones, not earthly ones. And as a result, verse 21, so is the one who stores up treasure for himself 
and is not rich towards God. Somebody who's focused on the world, they're not storing up treasures in heaven. It's all right here. Believers, we're reminded by Jesus, are storing up treasures in heaven, right? Our investments are here. God will bless us and reward us in the afterlife. So that is the instruction. And then uh, Jesus takes it one step further, the practical application. So let's look at verses 22 to 31 after the distraction, the instruction, and now the application of the parable in our lives. Uh, notice verse 22, do not worry, says my English translation in the New American Standard, verse 22. Do not worry. Who do you say that to? His disciples. Verse 25. And which of you by worrying? Verse 26, middle of the verse. Why do you worry? Verse 28, at the end of the verse, he says, you men of little faith. Verse 29, the end of the verse, do not keep worrying. So what is Jesus addressing now? Well, worry, right? Worry. That's uh, the immediate context, but there's a bigger picture. Let me show you what the bigger picture Jesus is getting at here. Look at verse 4 of chapter 12. I say to you, my friends, so... In this crowd of tens of thousands of people, Jesus was focusing on his disciples, and he called them my friends. So it's like he's kind of um, not dismissing, but he's only paying attention to his apostles here as he's trying to teach a lesson. So he calls them my friends, even though there's thousands of people listening. They're allowed to eavesdrop, but primarily he's talking to his apostles, his friends. My friends, verse 4, do not be afraid. Look at verse 7, middle of the verse. Do not fear. It's the same word. This is a command. It is an an imperative. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. This is from the Lord Jesus Christ talking to his disciples, giving them commands. And when God gives us a command, we are obligated to obey, aren't we? And there are good reasons for that. So verse 4, do not be afraid. Verse 7, do not fear. And then look at verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. He's talking to the same people. His friends, the apostles, the small crowd of disciples, of 11 of them. He's preparing them. Do not be afraid. And so the main overarching theme here is to do not be afraid. Do not fear the wrong things. Do not fear sinful things. Because he does say fear God. Fear hell, fear judgment, fear accountability. But don't fear man and these other things in life that people typically fear. And they're crippled with fear, and they can't even think straight. They can't even live life. And they can't be focused on the right thing because they're fearing the wrong thing. So this is one of the main themes that Jesus is going to highlight here. And it intersects with worry. So worry and fear are very closely related. As a matter of fact, uh, let me give you some, I think, biblical principles regarding worry and fear that are going to help us before we read the rest of this passage. Uh, First point is... A synonym for worry is, and if I were to tell you to fill in the blank, what might you say? A synonym for worry is, it would be fear. That's where worry comes from. Next one. What causes worry? According to this passage and other places in the Bible, what causes worry? I would say wrong thinking. So a synonym for worry is fear. Wrong thinking causes worry. That's why the focus of Jesus for his disciples to overcome fear and worry is to focus on their thinking. And we're going to see that in verse 24, also in verse 28. Uh, Number three, worry is equal to depression, true or false. Worry is equal to depression, true or false. Some people say true. That is not true. That's false. Worry is not equal to depression. They are different. Do they overlap? Yes. Are they similar? Yes. Are they synonymous? No. Let me clarify that. Worry is fear of the future. Worry is fear of the future. If I were to ask you, okay, you came in this morning, maybe you got up and you were worried about something. In other words, it was an illegitimate worry. Uh, um, This is not proper concern that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about sinful worry, fretting. And being overwhelmed by it. Being smothered by it. But we all have worry, right? How do we deal with it? So if I were to ask you this morning, what are you worried about? What are you worried about today? What are you worried uh, about? And if you told me, I would say, well, that's a future thing. 
because we worry about the future. We don't worry about the past. Worry is fear of the future. What is depression? Depression is angst or a troubled heart about the past. So depression looks back. Worry looks future. That's clear. Some people would counsel those who struggle with depression and say, well, what you need to do is stop dwelling on the past. And I would say, well, not necessarily. Dwelling on the past is not wrong. What's wrong is dwelling on the wrong thing about the past, right? Dwelling on your guilt, dwelling on regrets, dwelling on what you think is unforgiven sin, wrong choices, dwelling on consequences from the past. So it's dwelling on the wrong thing, which is wrong regarding depression. But you can dwell on things of the past that you should dwell on. Things in the past we should dwell on, the promises of God. Things we should dwell on in the past, things God did for us. Think about when you got saved, what God did in your life, how he changed you, things he's done historically, how he sent Jesus into the world. That's a past event that we need to dwell on constantly. Jesus rose from the dead and meditate on that. And then you apply that to your own personal life. All the things that God has done in your life and promises that he's made to you, even the bad things. That's Romans 8, 28. For God works all things together for good for those who love him, those that he knows. That's thinking about past things, horrible things. So instead of having regret and guilt and being smothered by those things in the past, you meditate on the positive things God's told us to meditate upon. And actually that dispels depression thinking about the right things regarding the past. God's power, God's promises, God's blessing in our life, God's providence that he's already brought about in our life. What is the opposite of depression? Joy, peace, self-control. Self-control of the mind, how you think. That is the opposite of depression. Joy, peace, self-control. What are those? Fruits of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you can have those and possess those in your life. That's Galatians 5, right? Walk in the Spirit, be obedient, have faith, and God will give you the fruits of the Spirit, and the fruits of the Spirit are you can have at any moment in your life by virtue of obedience. Part of that is peace, which is the opposite of worry and depression, and joy. So it is possible to attain it. Uh, one more. Uh, some people say, well, you shouldn't dwell on future things because that creates worry. Well, that's not true either. What we, should, we can dwell on the future, but it has to be Dwelling upon the right things in the future, right? If you're dwelling on the wrong things out of fear, that's what creates worry. If you dwell on, if you think about things of the future in the right way, not out of fear, then actually we have what the Bible calls hope. And that will squelch out worry in your life. So that's just a little uh, laying the foundation here because Jesus says something amazing in verse 22. Let's look at it, the application of this parable and his exhortations. Jesus said to the disciples, his disciples could be focusing on the apostles. For this reason, I say to you, do not worry. Literally in the Greek text, it says, stop worrying. Wow. Now, when God tells us to do something, we need to obey, right? And people immediately connect the dots. Wait, if God tells us to do something and we don't do it, is that sin? Is that disobedience? And then we say, yeah, of course. But we don't stop there. I think what's more amazing is the fact that Jesus can tell his apostles and disciples and give this just categorical command, stop worrying. I think Jesus means you can actually stop worrying. You can actually achieve this in your life. You ever thought about that? He says it repeatedly. He says it three times in Matthew 6. That was a different occasion to a different crowd up in Galilee. Three times in that passage. Stop worrying, stop worrying, stop worrying. And then he gives reasons why if you're a believer you can stop, literally stop worrying. And he does the same thing here. Do not worry. Stop worrying. And this is focused not on the unbelievers. This is focusing on his people. Little flock, verse 32, and his disciples, verse 22. These are believers. So I would say based on reading this and Jesus' other teaching, that Christians, believers who have the spirit living in them, they actually have the potential, the capacity to stop worrying, to stop fretting about the things in life that are illegitimate. That is, startling. that is amazing. That's awesome. That is liberating. Some of you might be thinking, no, that's not possible, Pastor Clip. No, well, it is because Jesus said it is. He's not going to tell you to do something that's not possible. Stop worrying, and then he gives us reasons of how we can do that. I, I was meditating on this week, this passage, thinking, you know what? I actually know some people who, who have accomplished this, or li they live this way. They don't fret. They don't worry. 
They, they live with no anxiety, and it's all rooted in their relationship with God. They are mature Christians. They have disciplined their thought life for decades. I mean, there's common denominators here of these few people that I know. Friends of mine are just people I know who are Christians who live this way. They live anxiety-free because they literally practice these biblical principles. They take this seriously. What does the world tell us? The world doesn't tell us we can conquer worry and eliminate it from our life. What does the world tell us about worry? Well, you got to live with it. Well, everybody's got to contend with it. Well, it's here to stay. Or maybe they'll up the notch and say, well, you can manage it. And then they give you techniques. You can manage it, but they don't promise that you can eliminate it. Many times it goes along with some kind of drug. Because their diagnosis, it's strictly uh, physiological. Well, what Jesus is saying here is worry comes from thinking. It's not physiology. It's not biology. It's your worldview. It's how you think. It's your view of God. It's your view of self. It's your view of the world. It's your view of the word of God and how you meditate on it and apply it to your life. And you can get to a point in your believing life, your Christian life, led by God, led by the Spirit of God, led by the truth of God, get to a point where you aren't overwhelmed by worry all the time in your life because you trust God. That's what it comes down to. Worrying and fretting. Well, let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 22. Uh, Jesus says three times, stop worrying, stop worrying, stop worrying. But he doesn't leave us there. He actually gives us reasons why we don't need to be overcome with worry and fretting about the world. So let's look at those. The first one, uh, verse 22 to 24. Uh, Worrying is wrong in view of God's faithfulness. 22 to 24, look at it. Uh, And... Jesus said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, stop worrying about your life, everything in your life, as to what you will eat, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. This is just the basics of life, right? Survival. Stop. You don't need to worry about survival. You don't need to be overcome with that. My future, my house, where am I going to live next week, next month, next year, 10 years from now, during my retirement? Jesus said, stop doing this. Stop worrying. Plan for it? Yes. Pray about it? Yes. Get counsel about it? Yes. Worry about it? No. Stop. Well, why? Well, 23. For this life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Life isn't just about food and fashion, says Jesus, which is totally contrary to what America thinks, right? Life is more than food and the body's more than clothing. You're not just a mannequin for the latest Vogue magazine. That's very superficial. That's very crass. That's how the world thinks. Don't think that way. Change your thinking. Verse 24, so here it is. So you can stop worrying if you do verse 24, and that is consider the... Consider, that's a key word, that's a Greek word. That is a command. That is an imperative. You know what it means? It's a compound Greek word. It is emphatic, by the way. He says it two times. Consider verse 27 and consider verse 24. The Apostle Paul uses this word in Romans. Consider, you know what it means? It is a command for Christians to think deliberately. Think literally this way. Fix your thinking in this manner. Lock it down. It's literally what it says. Lock your thinking into this pattern going forward. Think this way. Think about the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. Verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow and is thrown into the furnace, how much more will God clothe you, you men of little faith? God takes care of everything else. He's going to take care of you. So that's how one of the ways that we combat worry is we focus on, meditate on God's faithfulness. That's the point. God is faithful. Every one of these, he emphasizes something that God does. Verse 24, God feeds. God feeds. Don't worry. Verse 28, God so clothes. Don't worry. And then verse 30, the Father knows. So God feeds, God clothes, the Father knows. Don't worry. God's got this covered. God is in charge. God is sovereign. God knows what he's doing. God loves his children. God is the provider. God will sustain you. God will take care of you every day, every breath, as long as you are allocated by him to live in this life for his glory. 
That's how the Christian needs to live. Boy, if you discipline your mind on that, you'll, you will, little by little, grow in your sanctification regarding your thought life that you can actually, you'll have to battle, but you can overcome this kind of debilitating worry in your life and, and debilitating depression. It's all about uh, the mind and how you think, thinking like God. So, concentrate on God's faithfulness. Uh, second point he gives is worrying is wrong in view of anxieties fruitlessness. That's verse 25 and 28. It's real simple. Uh, why are you worrying so much? Does that change anything? No. Does it change the future? No. Does it change other people? No. Worrying doesn't work. So stop. That's his point. 25 to 28. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? You can't live any longer just by worrying, fretting. If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? And then again, think. Think the right way, verse 27. Consider the lilies of the field. Oh, I skipped the, ra the ravens. Anyway, verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. Neither, uh, they neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? So the second point is God's uh, anxiety's fruitlessness. God's faithfulness, God's fruitlessness. Let's go on to number three, reason why we shouldn't worry, 29 to 31, and that is pagan foolishness. Don't think like a pagan. If you are overcome with worry, you are thinking like a heathen. You're thinking like someone who is not saved, but you are a child of God. Don't think that way. You have the Spirit of God living in you. Verse 29, uh, Jesus says, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for all these things. The nations, that's the key word, the nations, literally the Gentiles, the heathen, the unbelievers of the world, this is what they eagerly seek after. This is what they think about. This is what they aspire for. This is how they live their life. But your Father knows what you as a believer need in this life. You need these things so the Father will take care of you. Verse 31, change your thinking, change your priorities. And he says, but seek God's kingdom and these things will be added unto you. What are these things in verse 31? All the things that we are worrying and fretting about. Our safety, our future, our provision, food, clothing, being taken care of by God. And God says, you know what? God, he is faithful. He's the father. He knows what you need before you ask him. He will take care of you. Rest in him. And it starts with how we think. We need to think God's thoughts after him. So that's a big chunk, and I know, but that brings us to the end of the application of the parable. And so with that, I just want to challenge you this week to, starting today actually, as we even talked about a few weeks ago in Second Corinthians, examine yourself. And one of the areas we need to examine is our thought life. Okay, Lord, what's dominating my thinking? Am I illegitimately overly concerned and anxious and uptight about the future and tomorrow and the basic needs of life. And then we need to literally stop, pause, confess that as sin to the Father, ask for his help to help control our thinking, ask the Holy Spirit to help you who lives in you, and in, but that's not enough. In addition, we need to continually feed our minds with the Word of God because this is where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing a word about Christ. That's a constant, regular discipline. And many times, uh, we need accountability in, in all those areas from fellow believers. So, start today. Small goals. Day by day. Monitor yourself. Look back on Friday and see, how did you do? Either with depression and worry, following Jesus' pattern to see if he was faithful to his promises. And I guarantee you, he will be. With that, let's pray to the Father and thank him for his help in this very difficult area of life. It's a challenge to us all. Father, we do thank you for this day, the opportunity to be with the saints, to look at the gospel, the ministry of Christ. And Lord, you came to die for sinners, and yet you spent three years lovingly teaching your disciples of how to live life in a very practical way. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for this very practical advice, how you, you care so much for us, our thought life. You knew we live in a fallen world, riddled with challenges and problems that 
seek to trip us up every single day. You know that we're frail. We are fragile. We have sin living in us. And in your grace, you know that we need your help. We need supernatural help. So we thank you for the supernatural help of your wisdom, of your advice, of your exhortations, of your comfort, of the power of the living word of God, of the spirit who lives in us, who are your children, prayers of the saints, fellowship of the church. God, you've given us all the resources we need. We thank you so much for that, and we give you the glory for it all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.